Mary Slusser of Calabar, Pioneer Missionary by W.P. Livingston. Chapter 5 Life in Harem. For many weeks she was an inmate of the harem, a witness of its degraded intimacies, enduring the pollution of its moral and physical atmosphere, with no other support than hallowed memories and the companionship of her Bible. Her room was next to that of the chief and his head wife. The quarters of five lesser wives were close by. Other wives, whose work and huts were at the farms, shared the yard with the slaves, visitors, and children. Two cows, small native animals that do not produce milk, occupied the apartments on the other side of the partition. Goats, fowls, cats, rats, cockroaches, and centipedes were everywhere. In her own room, the three boys slept behind boxes and furniture and the two girls shared her portion. Every night her belongings had to be taken outside in order to provide sufficient accommodation for them all, and as it was the wet season, they had usually to undergo a process of drying in the sun each day before being replaced. There was a ceaseless coming and going in the yard, a perpetual chatter of raucous voices. The wives were always bickering and scolding, the tongue of one of them going day and night. There was no sleep for Mary when this woman had any grievance, real or imaginary, on her mind. Both wives and visitors conceived it their duty to sit and entertain their white guest. To an African woman the idea of loneliness is terrible, and good manners made it incumbent that as large a gathering as possible should keep the stranger company. All this implied in the word home, its sacredness and freedom, its privacy lies behind the knowledge and presence of polygamist. Kind and neighborly as the women were, they could not understand the desire of Mary to sometimes be by herself. She needed silence and solitude. Her spirit craved for communion with her father, and she longed for a place in which to pour out her heart aloud to him. As soon as politeness permitted, she fled to the ground reserved for her, but they followed her there, and in desperation she would take a machete and hatch at the bush, praying the while so that her voice was lost in the noise she made. One woman of Mark was Imi Ita. Ma'imi, as she was usually called, a sister of the master, the same who had attracted her attention on the previous visit. She was the widow of a big chief, and had just returned from the ceremonies in connection with her husband's death, where she had undergone a terrible ordeal. All his wives lay under suspicion, and each brought to the place of trial a white fowl, and from the way in which it fluttered after its head was cut off, the judgment was pronounced. The strain was such that when the witch-doctor announced Ma'imi free from the guilt, she faded. Big-boned and big-featured, she'd been fattened to immensity. One day, Mary pointed to some marks on her arm and said, Why people have marks like these? Showing the vaccination on her own arm. Ma'imi simply said, These are the marks of the teeth of my husband. In that land, a man could do as he liked with his free-born wife. Bite her, beat her, kill her, and nobody cared. When consorting with the others, Ma'imi had the coarse tone common to all, but as she spoke to Mary or the children, her voice softened, and her instincts and manners were refined and gentle. A mother to everyone, she scolded, encouraged, and advised in turn, and when the chief was drunk or peevish, she was always between him and his wives as intercessor and peacemaker. She watched over Mary, brought her food, looked after her comfort, and helped her in every way, and did it with the delicacy and reserve of a well-bred woman. Unknown to all, she constituted herself Mary's ally, becoming a sort of secret intelligence department, and at the risk of her life, keeping her informed of all the underground doings of the tribe. 
a noble woman, Mary called her, according to her lights and knowledge. The wives appeared to have less liberty than the slaves. How carefully guarded their position was by unwritten law, Mary had reason to know. A girl-wife employed a slave-man to do work for a day. His master unexpectedly sent for him, and he asked the girl for food, which was part of his wage. She at first declined. Her husband was absent, and it was against the law of the harem. But as he insisted, she yielded and handed him a piece of yam. When this became known, she was seized, bound, and condemned to undergo the ordeal of the burning oil. It was an occasion for feasting and merriment, and as the fun progressed, the cords were gradually tightened, until she screamed pitilessly with the pain. Mary went and faced the crowd and pleaded for her release. There was a usual uproar, but she succeeded in carrying off the victim, who was kept chained in her veranda until the dancing and rioting ended with the dawn. Conditions in the harem were not favorable to child life. The mothers were ignorant and superstitious, and there was no discipline or training. Infants were often given intoxicating drink in order that fun might be made of their antics and foolish talk. As they grew up, they learned nothing but what was vile. The slave children became thieves. They had to steal in order to live. But if caught, they would be chained to a post and starved or branded with fire sticks. They became deceitful. They had to lie in order to gain favor. In this, they simply followed the instinctive impulses of their nature and of the lower nature about them. As the insects mimicked inanimate objects to escape injury or death, they simulated the truth to save themselves a beating or mutilation. The freeborn children did not require to steal, but lying was in the air like contagion, and none could avoid its influence. Of the older boys and girls, Mary wrote, they are such a pest to everyone that it is almost impossible to love them. Yet with a divine pity she gathered them to her and mothered them. Her earlier observations of the character of the African woman were confirmed by her sojourn in the harem. Hard and callous as a result of centuries of bush law and outrage, their patience and self-repression under the most terrible indignities were to her a marvel. They were not devoid of fine feeling, and beneath the surface of their nature the flow of affection and pity often ran pure and sweet. On one occasion a large number of prisoners were chained, previous to undergoing the ordeal of the poison being. There were mothers with infants in their arms, who, throughout a hot day, lay on the ground in torture and terror. At dusk the guards left them for a time, and seizing the chance, a few of the older women stole trembling toward them with water, which they gave to the children, and divided the remainder among the mothers. Anticipating such an opportunity, Mary had had some rice cooked, and this also the women smuggled to the prisoners. Had they been discovered, their lives would have been forfeited. Bands of women of the special class already described came from a distance to see the white maw, always more or less under the influence of drink loose in speech and destitute of modesty. These Amazons made her angry. They would appear at night and demand admittance to the yard in the hope of obtaining rum and other good things from the wealthy white woman. When barred out, they threatened reprisal. The chief, who never allowed his wives to go out of the yard to dance, even with his own relatives, stood on guard all night before his guest's room. And it was only after sunrise, when all were astir, that they were admitted. Haggard after their night's debauch, they presented a sorry sight, their bodies painted and decked with beads, colored wools, and scraps of red and yellow silk, and many with babies at their side. All they could extract from her was disapproval and rebuke, and they left with threats to make her position untenable. Some of the scenes she witnessed in the harem cannot be described. 
Had I not felt my Savior close beside me, she said, I would have lost my reason. When at home the memory of these would make her wince and flush with indignation and shame. She had no patience with people who expounded the theory of the innocence of man outside the pale of civilization. She would tell them to go and live for a month in a West African harem. Chapter 6 Strange Doings The sound of native voices chanting came through the brooding stillness of the hot afternoon. With the wild war song of Oak Young, the forest familiar, these words were strange and wonderful. Jesus, the Son of God, had come down to earth. He came to save us from our sins. He was born poor that he might feel for us. Wicked men killed him and hanged him on a tree. He rose and went to heaven to prepare a place for us. They were sung with tremendous force, and as each voice fell into the part which suited it, the result was a harmony that thrilled the heart of the white woman who listened. It was Mary Slusser's day school. For people possessing no written language, no literature, no knowledge beyond that handed down from father to son, the first steps toward right living, apart from the preaching of the gospel, is education. Schools go hand in hand with churches and missionary efforts. Mary began hers before she had the buildings in which to teach, one at Inkenge and the other at Efaco. The latter was held in the afternoon, in order that she might be back in her yard by sunset. The schoolroom was a veranda of a house by the wayside. The seats were pieces of firewood. The equipment, an alphabet card, hung on one of the posts. At first the entire population turned out and conned the letters. But as novelty wore off and the men and women returned to their work, the attendance dropped to thirty. Good progress was made, and ere long the pupils were spelling out words of one and two syllables. The lesson ended with a scripture lesson, a short prayer, and the singing of the sentences she taught. The last was so much enjoyed that it was often dark before she could get away. The school at Inkinge was held at the outer yard of the chief's house in the evening, when all the wives and slaves were at leisure. Men and women, old and young, bond and free, crowded and hustled into the yard, amidst much noise and fun. After a lesson on the alphabet and the multiplication table, she conducted worship. It was a weird scene, the white woman, slim and slight, standing bareheaded and barefooted beside a little table on which was a lamp and the book. In front, squatted on the ground, the mass of people as dark as the night, their shining faces here and there, catching the gleam of the light, the earnest singing that drowned the voices of the forest, and the strange hush that fell, as in grave, sweet tones the speaker prayed to what was to them the unknown God. The tale of such doings were carried to every part of Okiang, and invitations began to arrive from chiefs and other parts. Some, who were known as the Terror of Calabar, came personally to ask her to visit their villages and all laid down their arms at the entrance to her yard, before entering into her presence. But her own chief warned her against acting too hastily, and she would probably have followed his advice, and sought to strengthen her position at Ikinj and Efeko, had the matter not been taken out of her hands. Chapter 7 Fighting a Grim Foe the principal wife of a harem in close neighborhood to Mary went to pay a visit to her son and daughter at a village in the vicinity of the Cross River.
some eight hours' distance from Inkenj. She found the chief so near death that the headman and people were waiting outside, ready for the event. Hastening into the harem, she spoke of the power of the white ma at Ikenj. Had she not cured her grandchild, who had been very ill? Had she not saved many others? Let them send for her, and the chief would not die. Her advice was acted upon, and a deputation was dispatched with a bottle and four rods, about the value of a shilling, to secure Mary's help. She was called to the private room of her chief, where she found the messengers. What is the matter with him? she asked. As no one knew, she decided to go and see for herself. Edim and Ma'imi objected. The length of the journey, the deep streams to be crossed, the heavy rains, made the task impossible. "'I am going to get ready,' was her reply. Finding her immovable, the chief turned with a face of gloom to the deputation, and sent them back with a demand for an escort of free women and armed men. Mary imagined he was merely endeavoring to mark time until the death took place. In reality... He saw the district given over to violence and murder, and she in the midst, and her life imperiled. She passed a sleepless night. Was she right, after all, in taking so great a risk? She laid the matter where she laid all her problems, and came to the conclusion that she was. With the morning appeared the guard of women, who intimated that the armed men would join them outside the village. The rain was falling as they set out, and later came down in torrents, continuous and pitiless. Her boots were soon abandoned. Then her stockings, next her umbrella, broken in battle with the vegetation, was thrown down. Bit by bit her clothes, too heavy to be endured, were transferred to the calabashes carried by the women on their backs, and in the lightest of garments she struggled on through the steaming bush. Three hours of trudging brought her to a marketplace, where, in the clearing atmosphere, hundreds of natives were gathered. They gazed at her in amazement, feeling humiliated at her appearance. She slunk shyly and swiftly through their midst and went on, wondering if she had lost face and the respect. Afterwards she learnt that her self-denial and courage which that walk in the rain exhibited had done more than anything else to win their hearts. Others, however, were not so well disposed. At one town the old chief was anything but courtly, and only with reluctance allowed her to pass. When she reached the sick man's village and looked into the grim, expectant faces of the armed crowd, she felt as if she was walking into a den of wild beasts. At any moment the signal might be given, and the slaughter of the retinue for the spirit land begun. The women, silent and fear-stricken, carried off her wet clothes to dry. She was cold and feverish, but went straight to the patient and tended him as well as she could. Then she turned to the pile of odds and ends of garments which had been collected for her, and looked at them with a shudder. But there was no alternative and arraying herself in the rag, she went forth to meet the critical gaze of the crowd. The medicine she had brought had proved insufficient, and more must be obtained. Many lives she knew depended upon it. To go back to Ikenj was out of the question. Was there, she asked the people about her, a way to Ikorofyong? The Reverend Alexander Crookshank was stationed there, and he would supply what was needed. They confessed that there was a road to the river, and a canoe could be got to cross, but they dared not go there. They would never come back. They would be seized and killed. Someone told her that a Calabar man, whose mother was an Okyong woman, and who came to trade, was living in his canoe not far away. Seek him, she said. He was found, but would not land until assured that it was a white woman who wanted him. Mary prevailed upon him to undertake the journey, and he returned with all she required and more. 
With the thoughtfulness and kindliness of pioneer missionaries, Mr. and Mrs. Crookshank sent over tea and sugar and other comforts, and what she valued not less, a letter of cheer and sympathy. Hot with fever, racked with headache, she brewed the tea in a basin, and it seemed to her a royal feast. The world of friends had drawn nearer. She felt less lonely. Her spirits revived. The patient drew back from the valley of death, regained consciousness and gathered strength, and the women that looked on in wonder became obedient and reliable nurses. The freedmen thought no more of sacrifice and blood. The whole community had visions of peace. They expressed a wish to make terms with Calabar and to trade with the Europeans and learn a book. She was engaged all day in answering questions. Morning and evening she held a simple service, and seldom had a more reverent audience. Much worn out, she left them at last with regret, promising to always be their mother, to try and secure a teacher, and to come again and see them. Her faith and fearlessness had been justified, and she had her reward, for from that time forward, Okiang was free to her. Chapter 8 The Power of Witchcraft The belief in witchcraft dominated the lives of the people like a dark shadow, more menacing than the shadow of death. Taking advantage of their superstition and fear, the witch doctors, some of the cunningest rogues the world has produced, held them in abject bondage. And Mary was constantly at battle with the results of their handiwork. The chief of Ekinj was lying ill. Since she had taken up residence in his yard, he had treated her with consideration and guarded her interests and well-being. And now came the opportunity to reciprocate his kindness. She found him suffering from an abscess in his back, and gave herself up to the task of nursing and curing him. All was going well when, one morning, as she entered with his tea and bread, she saw a living fowl impaled on a stick. Scattered about were palm branches and eggs, and round the neck and limbs of the patient was placed various charms. The brightness of her greeting died away. Edom was suspiciously voluble and frank, flattered the goodness and the ability of the white people, but said they could not understand the malignity of the black man's heart. Ma, it has been made known to us that someone is to blame for this sickness, and here is proof of it. All these have been taken out of my back. He held down a parcel which, on opening, she found to contain shot, powder, teeth, bones, seeds, eggshells, and other odds and ends. On seeing the collection, the natives standing around shook with terror, and frantically denounced the wickedness of the persons who had sought to compass the death of the chief. Mary's heart sank. She knew what the accusation meant. At once before her eyes, men and women were singled out, seized and chained and fastened a post in the yard. Remonstration, rebuke, argument were in vain. The chief at last became irritated with her importunity, and ordered his retainers to carry him to one of his farms, whither he was accompanied by his wives, those of note belonging to his house, and the prisoners. He forbade Ma to follow, and enjoined secrecy upon all, in order that no tales might be carried back to her. But she had her own means of obtaining intelligence of what was going on, and she heard that many others were being chained as they were denounced by the witch-doctors. The chief became worse and stronger measures were decided on. All the suspected must die. Mary was powerless to do more than send a message of stern warning. Days of suspense and prayer followed. 
On the last day of the year, as she was lying awake, thinking of the old days and old friends, her heart homesick, and the hot tears in her eyes, when the sound of voices and the flash of a lantern made her heart start up. It was a deputation from the farm. They had learned that the native pastor, the Reverend Isen Ukpapio at Adaibo, the first native convert in Calabar, was skilled in this form of disease, and would Ma give them a letter asking him to come over and see the chief? The letter was quickly given, and she returned to her rest and her memories. When the native pastor asked what was the matter, the reply was that someone's soul was troubling the chief. In that case, he said, I can do nothing, and no persuasion or bribe would move him from his position. His sister, however, thought it might be well for her to go and see what she could do, and he consented. Under her care, the abscess broke, and the chief recovered, and all the prisoners were released with the exception of one woman who was put to death. Aware of the uncanny way in which his guest heard things, the chief sent his son to forestall any tail-bearing. No one was injured, she was assured. Only one worthless slave woman has been sold to the Inokon. As it was the custom to dispose of slaves who were criminals and incorrigible, the story was plausible, but she knew better. And when the son added that the three children of the victim had been quite agreeable, she thought of the misery she had witnessed on their faces. She pretended to believe the message, however, for to have shown knowledge of the murder would have been to condemn scores to the poison ordeal, in order that her informant might be discovered. When the chief was convalescent, it was announced by drum that he would emerge on a certain day from his filth, for the natives do not wash during illness, and the gifts would be received. His wife and friends and slaves brought rum, rods, clothes, goats, and fowls, and there ensued a week of drinking, dancing, and fighting, worse than Mary had yet seen. In the midst of it all she moved, helpless and lonely, and somewhat sad, yet not without faith in a better time. Chapter 9. Sorcery in the Path A more extraordinary instance of superstition occurred soon after. A chief in the vicinity, noted far and wide for his ferocity, intimated that he was coming to Ekenge on a visit. It meant trouble for the women, and she prayed earnestly that he might be deterred from his purpose. But he duly appeared, and throwing all her anxiety upon God, she faced him calm and unafraid. Days and nights of wild license followed, accompanied by an outcrop of disputes, most of which were brought to her to settle. One morning she found the guest drunk to excess, but determined to return at once to his village. His freedmen and slaves were beyond control, and soon the place was in an uproar. Swords were drawn, guns were fired, the excitement reached a fever heat. With a courage that seemed reckless, she hustled them into order, and hurried them off and accompanied them for the protection of the villages through which they might pass. She was able to prevent more drink being supplied to them, and all went well until at one point on the bush track they came upon a plantain sucker stuck on the ground, and lying about a coconut shell, palm leaves, and nuts. The fierce warriors who had been challenging each other, and every one they had come across to fight to the death, were paralyzed at the sight of the rubbish, and turning with a yell of terror, rushed back the way they had come. Mary sought forcibly to restrain them, but, frantic with fright, they eluded her grasp, and ran shrieking towards the last town they had passed, to wreak vengeance on the sorcerers. She ran with them, praying for swiftness and strength. She passed them one by one, and breathlessly threw herself into the middle of the path, and dared them to advance. She felt she was almost as mad as they were, but she relied on a power who had never failed her, and he did not fail her now. Her audacity awed them. They stopped, protested, argued, 
and gradually their hot anger, resentment, and fear died away, and eventually they retraced their steps. She took up the medicine they dreaded and pitched it into the bush, ironically invoking the sorcery to pass into her body if it wanted a victim. But nobody could persuade them to proceed that way, and they made a long detour. Unfortunately, drink was smuggled to the band, and fighting began. She induced the more sober to assist her to tie a few of the desperados to trees. Leaving these, the company went on dancing, brandishing arms, embracing each other, and committing such folly that she felt she could bear it no longer. As the swift twilight fell, she called her few followers and returned, releasing on the way the delinquents bound to the trees, but sending them homewards with their hands fastened behind their backs. On passing the scene of the sorcery, she picked up the plantain sucker, laughingly remarking that she would plant it in her yard and give the witchcraft it possessed an opportunity of proving its powers. Nothing is hidden in an African community. News travels swiftly. Next morning came a messenger from the chief she had escorted home. It had been a terrible night, he said. The native doctor had come to his master and had taken teeth, shot, hair, seeds, fishbones, salt, and what not out of his leg. If they had been left in the body, they would have killed him. It was the plantain sucker that was to blame, and his master demanded it back. Mary read the menace in the request. The plant was to be used as evidence against some victim. Argument and sarcasm alike failed, and she was obliged to hand it over. Edom was standing by. That, he grimly remarked, means the death of someone. On the arrival of the sucker, native oaths were administered to all in the village accused of the sorcery. Ordeals of various kinds were imposed on young and old, slave and free, and the lifeblood of a man was demanded by way of settlement of the matter. Strong in their innocence, the people resisted the claim, but by guile, the chief's men caught and handcuffed a fine-looking young man belonging to one of the best families and dragged him into hiding. Any attempt to effect a rescue would have meant his murder, and in their dilemma the people thought of the white ma, and sent and begged her to come and plead with the chief for the life and the liberty of the prisoner. She had never a more unpleasant task, for she detested the callous savage, but there was nothing else to do, and she went depending less upon herself than upon God. She walked trembling into the man's presence, but her fear soon passed into disgust and indignation. He was the personification of brutality, selfishness, and cowardice. Laughing at her entreaties, he told her to bring the villagers and let them fight it out. She pointed out that neither he nor his house had suffered by what had happened, that the accused people had taken every oath and ordeal prescribed by their laws, and that his procedure was therefore unjust and unlawful. "'It is due to your presence alone that I escaped,' he retorted. "'They murdered me in intention, if not in fact.' His head wild backed him up, and both became so rude and offensive to Mary that it took all her grace to keep her temper and her ground. As she would not leave the house, the chief said he would, and walked out, remarking that he was going to his farm on business. Swallowing her pride, she followed him, and begged him humbly as an act of clemency to free the young man. He turned, elated at her suppliant attitude, laughed loudly, and said that no violence would be used until all his demands had been complied with. She returned to her yard, and the days of strain followed. The situation developed into a quarrel between the chief and Edom, and every man went armed. Women crept about in fear. Scouts arrived hourly with the latest tidings. Her life was a long prayer. One day the young man was set free, without reason or apology being given or condition exacted, and told to go to his people. With his safety all desire for revenge was stilled, and the matters resumed their normal course. The heart of Mary once more overflowed with gratitude and joy.